This is our last lesson uh, in this series on prayer. We're going to talk this morning about five prayer questions you might ask. Maybe you've wondered about these things before, or maybe you have been asked about these things, and you're get, you get a preview right now of everything we're going to look at, but, uh, but maybe you thought never to ask, but yeah, that's a good question. Uh, we want to be confident about our role in prayer. Uh, if you've ever rented a car, that rental car is always different than the car you regularly drive. You know, when I've rented a car, the first thing I do when I get in is not to adjust the radio. I want to know where the door locks are. I want to make sure I know how to turn the wipers on. Um, I'm not worried about the engine. The engine I trust will take it from there. I just want to know how to get in and out of the car and maybe how to turn the air conditioning on or the heater, things like that. Uh, how to do the stick shift, how does it engage, disengage. I want to be comfortable with my part. The engine I don't really understand, it will do its part if I just turn it on. But my part, getting in and out of the car, I want to be confident about. And I just want to carry that way of looking over to our prayers. As we've talked about a little bit each week, there's a part where we just have to take faith that when God says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, that God does his part once we pray. But as much as has been revealed in Scripture about prayer that's on our part, our responsibility, our area of work, we want to make sure that we understand. And sometimes maybe things that we consider small uh, are really more important than we think. Or there's areas that maybe we're afraid to ask a question or we wonder why it is the way it is with prayer. So I'm going to try to take on the, the top five, if you will, that have come across, either been asked by me or I've wondered about myself or that are part of things we regularly do that but maybe we don't know why we do it. Uh, the first question is simply, should I pray to Jesus or the Father? I mean, you might first think, well, I never thought of that. Uh, but many of our songs, in fact, many of the older hymns, are hymns that are addressed to Jesus. Um, I can think of the one, uh, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. And throughout our hymnal, there are many songs that were written years ago that were written directly to Jesus. And sometimes you'll hear someone pray to Jesus, Jesus, help me in this situation, or something like that. Or we just wonder, can I pray directly to Jesus? At times, Jesus feels closer to us. Uh, he describes himself as our brother. Uh, we sing the song, Oh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Uh, we understand he intercedes for us. So in many ways, we feel closer to Jesus, and we might wonder, well, maybe we should pray to him, or can I pray to him as well as the Father? Let's take a look at what the Bible says about that. Uh, first of all, Jesus himself, uh, to answer the question, which is, he's always the first source to go to, he taught praying to the Father. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we've looked at Matthew 6 and Luke 11 repeatedly, but we've looked at it for different reasons. But in Matthew 6, where Jesus gives instruction in the Sermon on the Mount about prayer, and he gives very similar to instruction in Luke 11 when the disciples ask him how to pray. We ought to pay close attention to his answer because he answers directly on how to pray. And in this case, who to pray to? Uh, Matthew 6, verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who is sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, this then is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. So, clearly, Jesus' understanding is, even though one might be inclined to address their personal prayers to Him and, and want to, He Himself instructs to take those prayers to the Father. And in some way, uh, we ought to say, well, that is the answer right there, regardless of how we feel about Jesus. Uh, he instructs that we pray to the Father. And as we look at the broad biblical teaching about Jesus' role, that is understandable. Jesus is always presented in Scripture as the means or access to the Father. He intercedes uh, with the Father on our behalf. We know in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Paul says, For through Him, that's Jesus, for through Him we have access to the Father by one Spirit. Later on in the lesson, we'll talk about praying in Jesus' name and the importance of that. But Jesus is the one who takes our prayers to the Father. He is the one who enables us to pray to the Father. And that is clearly the taught role of the Son of God in Scripture. Even though Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Spirit is also God, they have distinctive roles. And Jesus provides the way to the Father, but we pray to the Father by Jesus' own instruction. And then there's multiple examples of prayers that are addressed directly to the Father. But we do have these examples, and I'll just look at one that some have noticed, where people did pray to Jesus. Uh, look at Acts chapter 7, verse 59. This is kind of a sad place to turn to, but it's the case of the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. He was a devout, a devout man, Scripture says, full of the Spirit, but because of what he was preaching to a hostile Jewish audience in the first century, they decided to kill him. But people have noticed how his life ended and who he prayed to, if you will call this a prayer. Uh, verse 59, Acts 7, it says, While they were stoning him, uh, that is throwing rocks at him to kill him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, for he died. Uh, here Luke records that he prayed, and he clearly prays to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But this is a very rare, unusual scene. Uh, there's really none like it. Uh, so we have this example of someone calling out to Jesus, and I think it's because Stephen here in this point of right before he died, understands that his spirit or soul will go on to be with Jesus upon death. He understands that your physical body just uh, wastes away, but your, your soul goes on to be with Jesus. So it's a statement of great hope and faith as far as where he goes next. He's going to be with Jesus. And Scripture clearly teaches that. Paul taught that in Philippians 1. So in this instance, you could say, though he's praying, he's more calling out to Jesus. And I think in times of distress or in moments where you just would cry out, Jesus, help me, that is perfectly permissible. That's exactly what Stephen is doing. And it's not wrong to call out to Jesus for help in the moment. We see that right here in this instance. 
As far as our daily prayers, our prayers of devotion to God, where we set aside time to prayer uh, or to pray, that's exactly what is being talked about in Matthew 6. When you go into your closet and pray in private, those regular daily prayers, Jesus himself instructs, we pray to the Father. So we should simply follow his instruction on exactly who we address our prayers to. Second one, each one of these we're, we're going to address just briefly and kind of give introductory thoughts, but a lot of the scriptures I write here for your own benefit so you can look at them more closely at home. Um, the second one is asked often, should I fast along with prayer? Well, first we have to consider what biblical fasting is. You will hear a lot about fasting today. Every once in a while a co-worker will talk, well, I'm, I'm on a fast right now. Uh, or I'm on, I'm, sometimes we, they use the word, I'm on a cleanse, a juice cleanse, where they're restricting themselves from certain food for dietary reasons or for health reasons. And that is perfectly a legitimate form of just fasting in the general sense of the word. But biblically, fasting is never dieting or it's never to cleanse your body of things. Uh, biblical fasting is often, though not always, accompanied with times of consecration or repentance before God. We see fasting going all the way back into the Old Covenant, especially in times where the nation of Israel had sinned against God, they had gone the opposite direction. The prophets would call them to a state of fasting before God. They would put on sackcloth. There would be prayer to show their remorse and also to show their repentance from their sin. Deliberately not taking food for a period of time was done to show their devotion to God and repenting from their sins. Other times we'll see fasting as scripture being done as simply as an act of devotion. Where someone wants to completely devote themselves in both body and mind to the Lord. Even though fasting, I'll just admit right away, has not been part of my spiritual life. I have a hard time with that. Uh, but I've gone without food for a period of time. You've got to navigate the first few hours, which are the hardest. But I've been told not by personal experience, I've been told that you can get to a certain point where, I don't know if the right way to say it is your body goes numb, but you're able to deal with the hunger because your body's kind of plateaued. You still could certainly eat, but you're at a point where you could remain without food for quite some time. We know in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, he went out to the desert and fasted for 30 days. Our body can go a long time without food. Water, no. Three days max. Food, much longer. But fasting, in that instance, was in devotion to God as he takes on the temptation by the devil. And that appears to be the general impetus behind fasting in the Bible. It was done as an act of devotion. We see it more under the Old Covenant than we do in the New Covenant. Uh, we don't find any direct teaching on fasting in the New Covenant. We just find cases where people prayed and fasted. Uh, I think the right conclusion is fasting is often associated with prayer, uh, but it's not required. But here's two good examples of it being associated with prayer and some lofty decision-making. Look at Acts chapter 13. We'll look at Acts 13, verse 1 through 3, and Acts chapter 14. I think these are probably the best representative examples 
of fasting take place, taking place with an appropriate situation. Uh, here it's the sending off of Paul and Barnabas to non-Jewish areas to preach the gospel. This is a major transition with the gospel. In Acts chapters 1 through 12, the gospel is preached almost exclusively to Jewish people first and in predominantly Jewish areas. That changes Acts 13. But notice what the church does in response and the, the disciples themselves. Uh, verse 1, Acts 13 says, uh, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's Paul. Verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me, or set apart for me, I'm sorry, Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Just notice the magnitude of this scene. Uh, uh, they were worshiping God together. Uh, they were fasting. Uh, the Holy Spirit directly speaks to the church and says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Here at the Holy Spirit's direction, they are set apart for their work in the kingdom. It says, to which I have called them. Uh, they fast and pray again, and then they place their hands physically upon Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. And this is a pivotal time in the early stages of Christianity, and it should not be surprising that fasting was associated with prayer. Let's look at another example. Look at chapter 14. Uh, chapter 14, uh, verses, uh, we'll look at verses 21 through 24. Here, elders are going to be appointed in some of these churches that have just newly been established. But we see both prayer and fasting associated together. Verse 21, Acts 14, it says, They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Verse 23 now. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. And with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. So we notice here the gospel continues to spread. These churches have been established by Barnabas and Saul. Now they go back to these churches, and they make sure they have elders in each one of them. But in that process of trying to decide who are the qualified uh, individuals to serve as elders, they make sure they engage that process with prayer and fasting. The Holy Spirit was not going to give a direct revelation who was going to be an elder, who was not, but they recognized this is a solemn, or at least we could call a very important occasion. Let's take it seriously, give it a lot of attention the right way. So the, the withdrawal of food, so they could focus, and then prayer was connected. Though fasting has not been part of my life, I'll just admit, when I've talked to those who have, 
they've relayed that when they did fast, whether it be just for a short period of time or some a longer period of time, it just enabled them to focus on whatever was their challenge unlike any other time of focusing. I just took their word on that because clearly, biblically, that was taking place, though not mandated. And I think the right conclusion uh, is this, and this is my judgment, that uh, fasting along with prayer, uh, or we should fast along with prayer, during times of important decision-making. I think it's perfectly appropriate to fast along with prayer during times of important decision-making. Churches may have to take, make decisions about maybe choosing a minister. You might have to make an important decision in your life concerning making a move. And do you leave the comforts of where you live for something completely unknown? Well, there might be relationship challenges going on in a marriage or in a family where you're not quite sure what the right thing to do is. Or you know whatever you decide, it's a big decision. Approaching it with a period of time of fasting would certainly be appropriate and be in line with examples that we see biblically. Again, though not mandated all the time, clearly appropriate and seized upon as a good thing to do during times of important decision-making. Here's the third area. What about women leading prayer? Uh, sometimes our visitors or long-term guests or our own members will ask, why... Why do women not lead prayer in the assembly? This is a good question. And many churches, many Bible students are examining this. And there are many issues that always need to be looked at. Because just because something is a common practice or a traditional practice doesn't always mean it reflects exactly what the Bible teaches. Maybe it does. And we just need to always look at it one way or the other. Um, as I looked at this and knew I was going to devote just five minutes to it, I thought, well, what can be said in five minutes about something that you could address for five weeks? The first thought that kind of emerged in my thinking is that prayer should be seen as being offered or expressed, but not led. I thought about that, the idea of, well, can both men and women lead prayer? Or who can lead prayer? And I thought, well, that word leading... Uh, unless I've missed it in Scripture, I don't find the idea of leading. Now, I know someone will know what I mean if I ask someone, uh, Sanjay, Sanjay, could you lead prayer? He will know exactly what I mean. That means speak in the assembly for everyone else. But sometimes the word leading carries a lot of extra ideas that may not be associated with prayer at all. A lot of times the idea of leading means a leader. And sometimes people, when they think of leaders, they think of men only or something like that. And there's a lot of vestiges from past concepts of masculinity and male roles where some will associate with leading the idea that only certain groups can do this or only certain people of certain stature in the church can do something because you're leading the group. Again, unless I've missed it somewhere, that's not really an idea associated with prayer. You might have one purpose representing the group in prayer, but the idea of someone leading it and have to be of a certain gender, I do not find that in Scripture. And even the concept of prayer, um, we're praying to the Father, and we're praying through Jesus, and our prayers are simply being offered. I might ask someone, could you offer a prayer to the Father on our behalf, or 
I might ask someone and probably change my own language to get rid of the idea of leading and say, could you please express a prayer to the Father? That gets rid of the idea that someone's taking charge in the prayer because that's not really what's happening at all. Someone may be representing the group and speaking the concerns of the group, but prayer doesn't have the idea of someone doing anything authoritative over anyone. It's simply something where someone speaks to God. So I think that's a, a clarifying thing as we're trying to get a, a biblical understanding. Also, we find in Scripture that women openly prayed in church assemblies. Let's look at these. Uh, Acts chapter 1. This is uh, even before the early church began. But the early church will be composed of some of the people here in this first assembly. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has just ascended to the Father after 40 days on the earth. He's told his apostles to gather together with the other disciples and wait for the Holy Spirit to come from upon high. But notice what Luke records here, Acts chapter 1, right after the ascension. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 14, says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Uh, those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Verse 14 now. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So here the male disciples, or apostles as we call them, as they're called in Scripture, verse 13, join together, verse 14, uh, with the others. It says they all join together. It doesn't say one group led, men led prayers. It simply says they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus. Luke makes a special point to say the women engaged constantly in prayer as well. We don't know, know exactly the nature of those prayers, but I'm just going to take it on face value. They prayed together with the men, and that was audible in nature. I would assume that unless they were all there silently, but we're going to see text later that they raised their voices together in prayer. So unless I'm deliberately trying to exclude someone, I would have to assume we have both male voices and female voices praying together, and no one's asserting themselves over anyone, because there is no leadership in prayer. There's simply voices being expressed uh, in prayer. Let's look at the next text. Um, Acts 4, verse 23. Uh, we, if we were to take time, Acts 2.42 says uh, the disciples devote themselves to prayer, but Acts 4, uh, verse 23, here Peter and John have been arrested by the Jewish leaders. They're trying to silence them from preaching the gospel. But look what they do on their release, and look what the church does. Verse 23, on the release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priest and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Then the prayer, we're going to look at this closer with another point, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. We'll just pause here. And they continued in prayer. 
But this they group is the same group that was gathered together in Acts 1. And now Luke records when they got back together, uh, Peter and John with the rest of the church, it says they raised their voices together in prayer. So it's clear that there's an audible sound. It's not a everyone's praying silently in the room type of situation. It clarifies unless someone is deliberately trying to say one gender didn't raise their voice, we would naturally conclude that both men and women's voices were raised together in prayer. But it doesn't say anywhere that one person was leading, that one person was taking charge in prayer. That's not really a biblical concept. Simply one person may express their voice, or everyone may. I'm trying to imagine how everyone be raising their voices together, but clearly it can be done. And it's everyone, both men and women. Another verse to consider at Acts chapter 12 we see this, whenever you see something as a pattern in Scripture where you see it repeated, um, it's definitely worthy of note because it's a common practice. And because the early church was under the direct teaching of the apostles, they were doing so with God's approval. Here in Acts chapter 12, Peter's been arrested. Uh, he may be executed just as James the apostle was in the previous chapter. But through the Lord's intervention and uh, angelic being being sent and releasing Peter from prison, he goes back to the church assembly. And here's the scene. Uh, first of all, let's see the church praying for him. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Okay, so the church is praying. Let's fast forward all the way down to verse 12. He's been released. He shows up at the door. Verse 12 of the house of Mary says, When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. And then the first person that comes to the door is a servant girl. So clearly women who are within the assembly here, many people were praying, gathered. So we find this consistent teaching of men and women together praying to the Lord, but no one asserting themselves as a leader or not being a gender-specific role, whoever was voicing prayer. Everyone was. That's simply the biblical model. There's more texts that we could take in. But these texts are significant because of their placement in the book of Acts, what we see as an example. And here's simply the conclusion I have. Women should have the opportunity to vocally pray in the assemblies just as men. But I'm very serious about they should have the opportunity. No woman should ever be forced to pray, just as no man should ever be forced to to openly and publicly express words in prayer. There are many men that choose not to for the same re reasons that women might choose not to pray. Uh, praying openly in front of others takes on all the feelings of uh, how people pray <laughs> or how they speak in public. Uh, speaking in public is daunting for a lot of people. Uh, it can cause a lot of anxiety. It can cause a lot of Second thinking, no one wants to be told, hey, you can't, and especially women, they don't want to be told, hey, you can't, but that doesn't mean they're ready to volunteer in two minutes. Uh, praying in the assembly is an open public thing, and many people are sensitive about what they would say, how they would say it. Um, it can be a nerve-wracking experience. Uh, there's a comedian one time that talked about a study that was done about public speaking. And he said, uh, people listed their number one fears, and uh, number two fear was death, and the number one fear was public speaking. And he said, 
That's kind of funny. That means if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than the one doing the obituary. <laughs> and that's kind of a humorous way to look at it. Uh, I have students that will not speak in front of the group. So I think even if we have an understanding that both men and women can offer or express words in prayer, there should not be an expectation that everyone has to because there's never been one with men. So we need to make sure the opportunity is there but not the idea that someone has to. Um, this is still a challenging thought. And depending on someone's faith background or their experience, it might have strong feelings or understandings about this that may be different. Ironically, in my experience, uh, some of those that have been most opposed to women praying in the assembly have been women. Uh, there have been some men that just cannot envision a woman doing that. But then I've had women take me aside that they don't, and they said very directly, I don't want to see another woman praying, and I don't know what that was all about, but sometimes it's our own personal experiences, conclusions, feelings about others praying that we struggle with. But this is one that should start with a struggle through Scripture, and then we have to work out our own feelings and emotions. That's simply a five, maybe seven-minute uh, lesson on my understanding of this area. Let's go on to the next, number four. Speaking of public prayer, how should one offer public prayer? We have people that represent us as they come up here uh, to offer prayer. And by the way, to offer public prayer doesn't mean you have to come up front. And that's part of the problem, too, where sometimes people think only one gender should do that. Well, if someone's up front, they should be of this gender. Someone can pray from the pew. Microphones can be brought. <laughs> this microphone I'm using is portable. If someone would like to pray, but they, they just feel like coming up here, this would be overwhelming. Either people listening or for themselves, praying can happen from the pew, and maybe we should make that very clear. Um, but how should one offer prayer in public? Uh, praying to God in public presents unique challenges. It's public speaking, which, like just said, is very unnerving for many people. I appreciate those who have offered prayer and continue to offer prayer uh, that have decided the best way they can feel comfortable offering prayer for the church is having written out those thoughts. Because uh, sometimes we don't always know what our mind will do and, our, and will our mind connect with our, our mouth and the right thing come out that we've wanted to say. And that's, I think, why Romans chapter 8, remember that last week, the Holy Spirit helps us because we don't always know what we ought to say. Sometimes there's a disconnect between what comes out and what our heart or our mind is thinking. And that is especially true with anything that's expressed publicly. Um, there's some that can naturally speak in public. They can naturally pray because they probably very naturally communicate privately. And, but there's others that communication's a little more challenging or they're just not that ready to go with their thoughts. And a little prayer, uh, or I'm sorry, preparation helps a lot. Uh, so I think anyone that be expressing thoughts to God in prayer in public, uh, needs to uh, prepare as they think appropriate for them. If you recognize, hey, the thoughts don't come to me or I freeze up, then that's a good thing to maybe write down what you want to say and it's perfectly all right to read a prayer. Uh, the nature of the Lord's Prayer was quite structured, but if thoughts come to you naturally, uh, then you can pray without notes. There's no requirement. The requirement is you have a a life devoted to God, that you be authentic, you be genuine. Um, that, is a that would be an expectation. But I think one of the biggest challenges I've noticed in my life is 
when we do offer prayers publicly, to remember to pray to God. Uh, look back at Acts chapter 4. You're in Acts 12 right now, but look at Acts chapter 4. You might say, what do you mean by this, John? That you remember to pray to God. Isn't that what we're doing? It is. But sometimes preachers have been the worst of at, in the prayer context, kind of switching to a sermon. Let me give an example. Uh, the preacher might begin the prayer, uh, Lord, I'm thankful for everyone in attendance. And for all those who are not here today, may they get their mind right. May they learn to attend the assembly. And, and if you are here, may you be focused. Where the, word is, the words of the prayer have kind of stopped being to God, and they've kind of started going to the people. But that's natural sometimes because you're in the setting where you are looking right at people. So we kind of have to be really reflective as we pray in a public setting that we're not just talking to people around us. And that can happen at home in a devotional group or up here. You're really just talking to the people. Look at this prayer. Notice what was done throughout the prayer to keep it focused upon God. Verse 24, Acts 4, this is when Peter and John were released. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God in prayer, or in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, there's to God. They said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the na nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Verse 27, again, we're in the middle of a prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Did you notice the pronoun that kept appearing within this prayer? Were pronouns you and your. There was a constant going back to the fact that Lord, we're speaking to you. Consider your servants of what has happened. And, and you have done this or you have done that. I try to do this in my personal prayers. Because sometimes as I talk, I think I talked with Eileen last week. It's easy when you're praying about things to start thinking about those things. Lord, help me with this work situation. And then all of a sudden you start thinking about that work situation. And you're kind of talking to yourself. I need to do this. Well, oh, man, I'm praying to God. Lord, please help me do this. I think constantly going back to you and your in your personal prayers will help you do so in your public prayers. So you don't just find yourself talking to others, telling them things you would like them to do, and you've lost focus, you're speaking to God. And then one other thought, I didn't really put it on the screen here, but one of the most powerful things, if you're offering prayer or expressing prayer for others, you have got to be a praying person yourself. You need to be praying personally at home. We're not up here saying prayers. We're not up here just voicing things. Uh, James said in 5 verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person 
is powerful and effective. Uh, if your life is in shambles and you're not doing anything about it, even if someone asks you to pray, politely decline. Say, I'm, I'm not in a position in my life where I need to be representing others in prayer. That doesn't mean your life has to be perfect or everything's humming just fine. But you need to be someone that is living a devoted life to God. Especially if you're going to represent others in prayer. And uh, that's just another consideration on how public prayer ought to be offered. The last bullet point is simply remember to represent the commitments and concerns of others. Commitments are simply that we are devoted followers of God and we, we pray as such. And we might pray, Lord, help us to be devoted. Help us to be of uh, sound teaching in our communication with others. Lord, help us to work on sin. Lord, help us to work on taking on the character attributes. Those are the commitments we all have. So when you pray, ask for those commitments. Uh, the concerns of others. Uh, we have prayers where we take prayer requests and we remember specific people that have asked for prayer or that might be sick. You're praying in public, remember to take on those things. Sometimes I've heard, again, preachers tend to be the most guilty of this, even before their sermon, Lord, help me to, and well, you're praying on behalf of others, but it's kind of become inward for, focused in ways like that. So we're praying for others. So that's a primary concern in public prayer. Last one, number five. Why say in Jesus' name or amen at the end of the prayer? First of all, we're not going to look at all these texts, but these are a lot that represent uh, an answer to these questions. I've heard all my life people end prayers by saying, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I've said this many times. Or I might say in my prayer, through Jesus I pray. Here's the most direct text kind of supporting the idea. John chapter 14, verse 13 and 14. Here Jesus was speaking just to his inner circle of uh, disciples that would later become his apostles. But he gives this idea where someone could literally say, in Jesus' name I pray. Um, Jesus says to his inner circle, verse 13 of chapter 14, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, You may ask me anything or for anything in my name, and I will do it. So here, repeat uh, in two places, or one text to one group, he says twice, pray something in my name. Now he's not saying here's a formula, or here's some magic words to say that will suddenly legitimize the prayer or jettison up to the Father. That's not why we say in Jesus' name at the end. But what we're saying, and this is what Jesus is teaching, is when we say in Jesus' name or through Jesus I pray, we're saying by his authority. Or through his intervention we pray. Remember Ephesians 2 verse 18. It's through Jesus we have access to the Father. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. The writer says, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He is our ambassador, if you will, to the Father. He takes our prayers to the Father. And because we've been cleansed by his blood, we can pray on his authority and through his power. So what we're really doing when we're saying, if we say it the right way, in Jesus' name we pray, we're praying through his authority or through his work as our advocate or our intermediary 
We're taking our prayers to the Father through Him. So through His authority, we pray. So in Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, 1 John 2.21, we see the teaching about Jesus being that go-between between ourselves and the Father. And that's also true in prayer, that He's our go-between. Can someone pray a prayer without saying that? Yes. There are many prayers, even in Scripture, that are just ended, amen, or they just end. I think just kind of naturally through the flow of prayer, a lot of times in Jesus' name, it could be said at the beginning. In fact, I've heard people do that at times. Lord, Father, in Jesus' name we offer. That can be done. But it's kind of evolved to be a way of, here's the ending of the prayer that's being offered. In Jesus' name we pray. So it's kind of a way of rounding out or bringing it to conclusion your private prayer or a prayer offered in public. So in any place, it's a perfect time to acknowledge that. But there's no requirement to be said every time or in any certain order. We acknowledge that by the nature of our praying, that we're praying through Jesus. Uh, the final thought is amen. The most common part of prayer, uh, it's almost always there, but... Why is it there and what does it mean? The word amen uh, literally means so be it. Or let it be true. Our last scripture will be a Philippians chapter 4, uh, verse 20 through 23. We, we see expressions of prayerful thought ending with amen, and then we'll just close with why. Here Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he ends his letter, but he ends kind of with a prayerful thought. In verse 20 he says, To our God and Father be glory forever and ever, Amen. Verse 21, Philippians 4, Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All of the Lord's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This idea of amen, again, means let it be true or so it be. You might think, well, I hear people saying this a lot at the end of our songs. And that's an exactly right time to say it as well. Many times when we sing in a powerful fashion, we, we sing praise be to our God, the Lamb of God, and we end by saying amen. And we hear that when the song ends. We're saying this is true. We're affirming it when we say amen. It's an affirmation that we believe this as well. Or it's just as true today as when it was said originally. We're saying we agree with the thought being expressed. And we're affirming it when we say amen. So that's the purpose of saying amen. We're not, amen does not mean we're done. <laughs> we're done. Amen. Uh, though it kind of has that secondary benefit. Usually when someone says amen, they're done. They don't say at the beginning of the prayer. They say at the end. So that's the benefit. We kind of know the prayer is finished. But it also is affirming, let this be true. And others almost in chorus, say amen at the end of prayer as well. Speaking of amen, this is amen to the lesson. We are finished. Hopefully these five areas have helped. Even if they've been areas of, boy, I hadn't thought about that before or I'm not quite sure, I provide some extra scripture for you to kind of look at on your own. And it always we're always studying things anew. We're studying them afresh, not to come up with new conclusions, but as scripture says, we study the scriptures daily to examine whether or not the things we believe are true. 
examination of things we've always done are always good. Because maybe what we've always done is exactly what we ought to be doing. Sometimes we always need to allow for thoughts that we hadn't considered before and to study together, talk together with each other. And that's always a good thing. And remember with prayer, we are communicating to God. We, we want to make sure that our end of prayer is surrounded by Scripture and we know exactly what we're doing on our part and allowing prayer to have its work so that God might take that prayer and do His work on His end. And may God bless us, both in our private prayers, that we might pray regularly, we might pray with a conviction, and we might pray believing that God will respond to our prayers just as He said He would. And may God bless us, and may our prayers be powerful and effective just as God said they would. Amen? Amen. Amen. There we go. We're going to sing a song now to encourage us to be faithful to God, to walk with Him every day, and take on the challenges of this world. Nathaniel, would you lead us in the song?